Hello and welcome to episode 137 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Vienna, Virginia. I'm Ben Olson and with me in Los Angeles is Nathan Fox. How's it going, Nathan? Great, man. Just got back from the Bay Area. I was in Santa Clara last night doing a like promotional deal teaching Logic Games, so that was fun. And had the late flight back last night. Cool. So I'm going to see my folks today. Okay. Yeah, they're down here. My dad's doing some like golf thing and my mom's just hanging out with him. So I'm going to drive down and see her for a while and then have dinner with them tonight. Okay, cool. Yeah. So when you do the uh, promotional games class, what do you, what games do you do? I pick them at random. I really do. I just like grab some section of games. So last night I was doing like something in the sixties. It was like from some games from 2010. Okay. Yeah. I like to do different ones that I haven't done a lot recently. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to see how I do them differently. Yeah, for sure. When I, when I go back and do them again, that one there's man, there's one thing I do now that I, I never would have done it on older games mm-hmm. is the, um, when I see one conditional rule, yeah, I immediately make two worlds now. Sure. I just like right off the bat. So this was June, 2010. There was a rule that was like, if M's before P then H is before G. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe it wasn't June 2010. It was some test from 2010. Anyway, the rule yeah. is if M is before P, then H is before G. Yep. And I, in the old days, I would have always like written out the rule and written the contrapositive and all that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And nowadays, I just, the first thing I do, it's like nothing even touches the paper besides a line down the middle, M before P on one side and P before M on the other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's amazing how, how much cleaner it is, how, how just you just immediately are off to the races mm-hmm. with that approach. Yeah. Yeah. So then in the situation where the condition is met, you have the, um, the result or what was it? H before G. Is that what it was? Yeah. So on the side of the board where it's M before P, then I also have H before G. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, and I always like, you know, elicit it from the group yeah like, what's gonna happen and then so over here and everybody goes g before h You're and like, i go no no, <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> over here the rule does not apply at all yeah what they're so used to they're like they're trained it's like they they're like uh robots mm-hmm. you know automaton they just they they've got this idea of you always there's always the contrapositive yeah and i'm like but there's not though if i just make two worlds mm-hmm. yeah so anyway, it's it's interesting to see how I have you know how my approach has changed over the years. Yeah, someone was just asking me the other night how often I do worlds, and I'd say, well, probably now it's around half the time. Um, whereas when I took the test officially, I probably did it about maybe a quarter of the time. I, I don't. Yeah. I wasn't even that. I wasn't even thinking about it that often. It would have to be screaming at me. And then I'd say, oh, maybe I should create worlds. And I don't even think I called it that then. It just happened you know yeah i do it all the time um i also you know i was i had my class in san francisco this weekend which boy i loved my class in san francisco because they just it was the last uh sunday was the last day Mm. of that of that class Mm -hmm. and um i'm gonna miss those guys that was such a fun class anyway um we did 82 we did games 80 test 82 on sunday and I do them just, it's like whatever approach comes to mind, that's what I do in class. I'm trying to show them a sort of a genuine approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and uh, you know, and improvisational approach, not just like some scripted solution that I have memorized, but I'm trying to say, here's how I would react to this in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, also when I do really recent games, it is kind of me. It is me really reacting to it. Cause I haven't done those games that many times. Yeah. Prep test 82. Yeah. A handful of times. Maybe I've done those games mm-hmm. anyway. I did worlds on game one and I did worlds on game two and I did worlds on game three and I did worlds on game four. (laughs) I was like, I don't want to give you guys the impression that I always do worlds. Yeah. But for this particular section, I just, and, and, you know, today, my approach to it today, I just happened to see these opportunities and here's how I just felt like was going to be the best way to attack it. And so that just happened. So yeah, that was four for four on making worlds. Hmm. Yeah, that's funny. I have to go back to look at Tate 82 and see how many times I did worlds for that one. Uh, it's certainly not necessary. And I always try to say that, you know, it's like, I'm not telling you that this is the only way to do it. I'm not telling you that this is the necessary way to do it, but I am telling you that this is a damn good way to do it sometimes. <laughs> and it's a tool that you have to have. You, you have to have that in your, you know, in your game. Potentially you have to be able to do that sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes I, I often say that in class. I'm like, hey, this is the way I did it. You don't have to do it this way, but it certainly is the best way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, one thing I want to just unpack a little bit. At the very beginning, you said when you have one conditional statement, when you have one if-then statement, then you immediately create worlds, two worlds, yes. one for when the condition is satisfied and one when the condition is, the if clause is not satisfied. But um, when you have two if then statements, what happens then? Or is there such an automatic rule in that case? Oh no. Then, then it, then I might, if I can link the two conditionals together, I mm-hmm. might just do that instead. Yeah. Yeah. But if I can't link the two conditionals together, then I'm not sure, but I, I might, if I notice that one of the conditionals seems like, when it's activated, it's going to do a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. Sure. Then I, I still very frequently would probably make two worlds based on that conditional. Yeah. It's also the case that the other conditional might only be applicable in one of those two worlds. Once I've made them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in which case is, you know, sometimes I might end up splitting one of the two world, one of the two starting worlds. Sure. Yeah. I might have like world A, world B, and then I might end up splitting world B into two. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, it's probably, I'm not sure how much of this is getting across on, in the podcast format. Um, it'd be a lot easier to explain with a whiteboard and an actual game in front of us. Yeah. Well, um, today on the show, we'll be discussing a few emails as always and some good stuff here first um pearls versus turds on reading comp and logical reasoning uh okay i'm curious to hear what that's all about another email is going to be about um well someone's asking at my current level of scoring which test should i take and i guess that's in reference to the july test is that right yeah wanting to wanting to talk about july versus september got it and then we have another email how do i make my personal statement not sound like a melodrama (laughs) <laughs> this is good so um yeah we're gonna cover that stuff and uh, jump right in before we talk about that i guess we should point out that the face group our facebook group thanks annalisa by the way is annalisa right who started it, i think 
Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you for starting that. It continues to grow. It's now at 387 members. Cool. Yeah. There was a lively discussion going on yesterday. Um, oh, really? With, uh, yeah, well, just a, a bunch of... Um, somebody asked if there are other uh, vets or active duty military in the mm, group mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of people were chiming in. So there are, there are vets and, and active duty folks. And they were talking about various different um, GI bill things and yellow ribbon things. And um, this, this is really interesting. That's, that's a good way to get law school paid for. Yeah. That's a, that's a good way to not pay for law school, yeah. to have Uncle Sam pay for <laughs> law school. And they were even saying, which I was, I was shocked to see, but there are some of those programs, if you get a scholarship to law school, then you can actually get, pay, you can actually get paid cash. Oh, like you can get those those GI Bill benefits or something. I don't know exactly how it goes down, but there were some of those benefits that you could actually get returned to you in cash. Uh, if you if you have them and you still get a scholarship, so just because Uncle Sam's paying for it doesn't mean you should half-ass it. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, go ahead and get yourself a scholarship anyway. Okay. Yeah. Well, so go over there to Facebook and join the discussion. I haven't been on a, in a week or yeah. two, but well, yeah. I mean, I try to just like kind of stay out of the way because those they all know a lot more about these programs than we do anyway. So I was just kind of reading and trying to learn a thing or two, but there's that and a bunch of other stuff going on on the Facebook group. So definitely check that out. Yeah. Then we have 12 patrons on Patreon. Patrons. <laughs> patrons. We have 12, <laughs> 12 patrons on Patreon donating $96 every month, which we're very appreciative of. It's once it breaks a hundred, then we'll be getting 10% of our monthly costs covered. So that would be yeah. great. <laughs> and uh, keep the lights on here, at least at least from flickering. Um, yeah, we appreciate it. Even if you only support us to the tune of $1 a month. I mean, we would love to say 13 patrons donating $97 a month. Um, every little bit counts. And, and we just like to know that you're on our team. So if you, uh, if you feel like chipping in a little bit, on uh, Patreon, we would really appreciate that. Yeah, very much. Um, you can always email us questions at help at thinkinglsat.com or post them on thinkinglsat.com. And yeah, um, we have, we always have services. Um, my website is strategyprep.com and Nathan's is foxlsat.com. We both teach classes, we both do one on one tutoring, and we both have uh, online classes. So check it out and yeah, do what you want to do with that. <laughs> uh, yeah, did you want? We do anything? have to make a. We do have to make a living. Yeah, as long as the LSAT still exists, we uh, we are we are in business. So uh, visit our websites and check out all of the stuff we have to offer. Yep. Cool. Um, well, let me see here. I. We'll dive into this first email, I guess. Sound good? Perfect. Okay. Yep. Hello. Hope your weekend is going well. I stumbled upon your podcast a few days ago, and I have watched a dozen episodes since. Watched. I wonder if this individual watches them on YouTube. I was wondering the same thing. Yeah, that's interesting. Hmm. Uh, There's nothing to see, by the way, (laughs) except for the little kid (laughs) with his glasses. You and Ben Ben Olson offer free yet valuable advice. Well, thank you. I was wondering if you could. (laughs) I laughed at that line. I was like, thanks. We do offer free yet valuable advice. Thank you for noticing. That's great. 
who is this? Oh, we don't know. Oh, amateur philosopher. AP continues. I was wondering if you could answer a few questions I had about LR. For background information, I average anywhere from two to five wrong a section, and I really want to get down to minus zero in July. One, when you read a stimulus, do you read over the entire thing once, or do you take a moment to digest each sentence? Well, I'll tell you right now, I I definitely pause after each sentence. It happens in class, too, uh, just to make sure I'm really understanding what was just said and how I feel about it. Uh, you? Uh, yeah, 100%. You... That's reading comprehension. Yep. Reading comprehension sometimes requires you to take a pause after each sentence. Yeah. And I, when I say reading comprehension, I mean <clears throat> comprehending what you read, which is a necessary part of logical reasoning. Yeah. And games so, and the test. Yeah. Pause whenever you want to pause. Take a breath. Make sure you're understanding what you're reading. You actually have to understand this shit. That's part of the game here. Yeah. AP continues, I personally think, you don't need the word personally, but I personally think glossing over the stimulus first through first time through doesn't help because I can barely recall any content. Good. Some companies recommend skimming the passage first and then delving into the stimulus. I think it's more effective to break down each sentence and see how it interacts with other sentences. Yes, do what your gut is telling you do not do what some companies are apparently recommending. Yeah. I would go so far as to say, if you hear someone say skim the passage first, um, on either logical reasoning or reading comprehension, if they say skim it and then read it, go ahead and just disregard everything else they have to say. Yeah. That that's going to be one hundred percent opposite of our philosophy, and uh, that's that's just that's some bullshit. That's some gaming it kind of bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. That's not actually understanding it. That's that's gimmick. That's a weird gimmick that I cannot imagine possibly could help you. By the way, I don't understand this. Some companies recommend skimming the passage first and then delving into the stimulus. Are they? Is there a distinction here between the passage and the stimulus? I thought the stimulus was the passage when this author first started talking. It's possible that AP is confusing the stimulus and the stem. Yeah. It's also possible that AP meant passage and stimulus to be synonyms. Yeah. I don't really know. Hmm. Either way, let, let me, here's a, here's another thought about this. I had a, um, a psychologist, uh, a colleague of mine in San Francisco okay. came, uh, came to my class I say colleague because he's a, he's in this like networking group with all of the like fancy tutors in San Francisco. And, um, he came to my class and did a little presentation about sort of, um, things you can do to reduce anxiety during the test. And I had never had him come before. It was really interesting. Mm. And I thought useful. The class found it useful. Anyway, um, he was talking a lot about presence and he was talking about how stress comes from basically being disconnected. You're out of the moment. If you're worrying about things, you're just not in the moment. You're mm. not doing your job. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So this strategy of skimming, you know, like, Oh, I got to make sure I get through the whole thing. I got to, I got to get, I got to get through it. I got to go. I got to go. I got to skim it. That to me really does seem like 
you're almost intentionally being disconnected, mm-hmm. right? It's the exact opposite of being connected. Yeah. The, if you're connected to the material, it's, it's dense sometimes, right? It's, there are hard words in there. Mm-hmm. Unfamiliar words. There are, I, I can, I will always run across a word that I don't, that I have never even heard before. That happens all the time that I'll run across some word where I'm like, what? I don't have no idea what that means at all. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that happened on one of the logical reasoning questions this weekend. It's just, it's not uncommon. Mm-hmm. Um, there are convoluted long sentences. They make their arguments backward. They put their conclusion at the beginning. They put their conclusion in the middle. They, they, they put out these weird puzzling set of circumstances. They throw in non sequiturs. There's all sorts of things that can be a little difficult to follow. Mm-hmm. And you, you necessary, any one of those things you, you, you might need to take a pause, let it sink in, reread it if necessary, and then start thinking about what's likely to come next. You'll be better equipped to read the next sentence if you made sure that you really let that first sentence click in. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, we can't say this any stronger, but no, you don't, there's no skimming. There's reading it and really digesting it and really making sure that you're understanding it piece by piece. And then everything else after that will become a lot easier to read. Yeah. I want to say two things. One about what you were saying in terms of being in the moment or being present, I guess, is that the, the way that Sure. Connected, mm-hmm. present. Yeah. Being in the moment, all that. Yeah. Well, I think that's describing exactly what I think we're telling people all the time when it comes to slowing down, which is what you were just saying. But it's so interesting because it's that being in the moment, being present is when you are 100% focused on what you're reading and trying to understand that allows you to go fast because now you're moving forward. You're moving the ball forward, so to speak, in the test as opposed to kind of being two places at once being there in the question, but also being at the end of the test or thinking about how much you have left in the test or thinking about how much noise the person next to you is making. All those things are disconnecting you from the question as opposed to allowing you to fully engage, which is why sometimes I will read, it's not very often, but sometimes I've found myself reading the first sentence in a reading comp passage like four times because two of those times I finished reading the sentence and I realized that my mind was somewhere else. I was thinking about how much time I had left or whatever. And it's like, no, I got to stop right now and I got to fix this problem. And I've got to go back and reread so that I start to get into the text. And that's the same as I think being present with it or being 100% there as opposed to anywhere else. Yeah. And you can, on the logical reasoning, well, on the reading comp, you, you frequently the first couple sentences, there's going to be something in there where if you read it closely enough, you'll realize that, oh shit, you know, that one word really gives you an insight into what the author's thinking and gives you a hint about what's going to come in the, in the rest of the passage. Yeah. And if you miss that little hint, then it's going to just be so much harder to read the rest of it on the logical reasoning. There are so many examples of questions where like, I think I ran across a must be true question over the weekend where the first sentence and the second sentence, if you're 
if you're, if you're present, Mm -hmm. you realize that, well, this and this, if they're both true, necessarily mean that this other thing is true. Mm -hmm. And then there ends up being a bunch of other stuff in that passage. Yeah. But the questions must be true. And the correct answer is just that connection between those first two sentences or even the first, the the two clauses in the first sentence Mm -hmm. connect in such a way that they prove what turns out to be the, the answer. Yeah. But if you're skimming or if you're going, you're just, you're kind of, you know, you know, I got to get through this thing. So you just kind of read it all quickly. Yeah. Then you didn't notice that those two things connect to each other. And you just, you've missed an opportunity to answer the question way early. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, as I'm that pause that I take, I literally said the correct answer. Yeah. I didn't know it was going to be the correct answer, but I said it. And you get down into the answer choices and it's like, oh, well, yeah, duh. I mean, that has to be true. Yeah. If those first two things are true. So, yeah. And then another example, and I think this was another question that I encountered over the weekend, was they said something and then they said, or it was like, since blah, 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 comma. And then they said something, but I paused for a second and I went, wait, wait a minute you just confuse sufficient for necessary. And if I had been blundering ahead and reading the second and third and fourth sentence, trying to get through it in a hurry, yeah, I wouldn't have noticed that they already confused sufficient for necessary right in the first sentence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and Oh, surprise, surprise. It's a flaw question. And that's the answer. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that, that idea of just being, being present, I, I I really liked that a lot. But wait, wouldn't it have been helpful to know that it was a flaw question so you could have found that more easily? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. Think about that. That's reading the question stem first is the exact opposite of presence. Yeah. It's it's like, well, I'm gonna hold it in my head that this turns into a necessary assumption question later. Mm-hmm. while I while I then read some argument about, you know candy store the cookie aisle and the and the and the shampoo or something mm-hmm. and it's like well i have to understand what the hell they're talking about with this with this store the convenience store that they're telling me about i have to understand what the hell they're saying before i worry about later answering some question that they're going to ask me mm-hmm. uh, yeah i it, that's um and we've gone over that a bazillion times but <laughs> all of these gimmicky stem first skimming weird uh, uh, it's uh, no the test is so much easier than you think it is if you just understand what you're reading yeah okay that took longer than i thought it was going to <laughs> ap continues two when i am simply practicing lr questions as opposed to doing them in sections i enjoy being slow and comprehensive i write down notes and often talk to myself like a teacher would this help me with timed sections or mess with my pacing by making me too slow? Mm. I don't think it's necessary to write down notes. Um, maybe after the fact, like takeaways, but I wouldn't do it during your practice of the LR question itself. I would just answer it using your head and reacting inside your head, just like you would on the actual test. Yeah. I, I don't think you need to be writing anything down. 
I like the talk to myself like a teacher thing. I yeah. mean, I, I, I like it. I like the talking through the argument kind of thing. Oh, so you've said this. Okay. What's the next thing? You know, what, so what, what do you mean by that? Oh, I see. Here's your, Oh, you said we should do this. Okay. I'm expecting now that you're going to provide me evidence for that. Oh, there it is. I see some evidence, but you know, that evidence doesn't really justify that conclusion because that's all good. If you're, if you're talking through, yeah, talking through the question, when you talk to yourself, you almost always, uh, simplify in a good way what you're reading. Just last night, um, I was reading the phrase dampens their intellectual appeal. I don't know if you remember okay. that phrase from the, was the yep. chemistry question. And the student I was talking to was like, this phrase just like, didn't sink into me. I was, I was, it didn't hit me <laughs> during the test. And I'm like, well, what is it? What does it mean to you? If it's something dampens the, the class's inter- in intellectual appeal, what's happening? It's like, well, it's getting boring or something. It's like, yeah, it's getting boring. If the question said the classes had become boring, would this be a lot more tempting of an answer? Yeah, it would be. Um, it would be more, much more obvious that that's a problem here. And in any case, I think it just illustrates that when you're reading stuff and talking to yourself in your head, restating what you think it's saying and then what you, how you react to that, it may seem like it's taking time, but the more you do it, the faster you get at it. And the faster it is that you start translating this convoluted garbage into sentences that make sense. And then you see the answer. That's why when we talk about them in class, halfway through the discussion, people are like, yeah, 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 that makes sense. Because we've just translated the garbage into plain English. You just need to start practicing doing that yourself in your head. So that's really good. Yeah. And the one thing that AP says here that makes me cringe a little bit is the word pacing. Mm -hmm. I hate that word. I wish people would never say pacing. Because that always means that you're thinking too much about how many questions you're going to attempt and you're, you're trying to like manage the time in the timed section. I, I'm really worried about that. Mm-hmm. You, you should never be thinking about your pacing. You should be thinking about answering these questions correctly. Yeah. You should be thinking about the question in front of you and solving it correctly. That's whether you're timing yourself or whether you're just practicing, you know, one or two LR questions for fun or, or for, you know, whatever untimed practice, you should, you should always be approaching those questions the same way, which is I have to figure this out. I want to be very confident that the right answer is right. And I want to, I want to ideally predict the answer before I even get into the answer choices. Mm -hmm. And none of that is calculating in advance if managing planning the pacing aspect i hate i just hate that word let me give you an example my um one of my students over the weekend told me that she had a strategy of um she's she's been really trying to slow down Mm -hmm. which is good and her accuracy has been improving which is good and she's you know she's fairly low-ish level like she's gonna get you know 12, 13, 14 points in a section of LR, something like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, she's, so she's got a long way to go, but she, she said, here's, here's my strategy. You know, what do you think about this? 
at the beginning of the 35 minute section, I'm going to bubble in guesses for questions 14 through 25. Okay. And then during the time, Mm -hmm. I'll just do those 13 questions that I haven't bubbled. Hmm. So the pressure's off. Well, I actually hate it though. Yeah. Because that's, that is being disconnected. That's, that's determining in advance that you're going to do a certain number of questions. Now you're managing your time and she's going to then be spreading her 35 minutes across those 13 sections. And as the time gets closer, you know, like for sure, when the proctor says five minutes, now she's going to be looking and, Oh, I have three more questions left that I need to do. Mm. Well, that's not working on the question that you're supposed to be doing right now. So one thing here though, I wouldn't mind that or at least that commitment if the 13 is a number that she can definitely hit. Like she actually expects to hit 16 or 18 or some number more like that because in some ways it's telling her it's okay (laughs) to do fewer. Because I think sometimes people need that message. Like they need to let go of those questions that they feel like they're striving to get. So I think it would depend on that 13, whether that's like right where she thinks she can get and then she's pacing herself or if it's well below where she thinks she can get. And it's basically giving her permission to go at a a leisurely pace. What if this section turns out to be a little easier? What, I mean, she's improving at the test. What if she, what if she gets through those 13 in 25 minutes is now she going to freak out that she went too fast you know, or what mm, if the section is a little bit just tougher? It's a bonus. Yeah. Now you just keep going and you erase <clears> the <throat> ones. All right. I mean, fine. It's not, I guess it's not that big of a deal, but it just, it, to me, it just seems like this con- you're, you're reaching your conclusion in advance. Like you're going to, I, this is how many questions I'm going to do. You don't know how many questions you're going to do. It could be less than that. It could be more than that. My strategy is always just do question number one, figure it out, get it right. Then do question number two, figure it out, get it right. Be present, get the fucking questions right, you know, and, and then sort it out at the end. When the proctor says five minutes, now you can bubble in, you should bubble in guesses for all of the remaining questions when the proctor says five minutes Mm -hmm. and then one at a time, just, you know, basically answer one more question after the five minute warning has been called. Mm -hmm. But I don't when I've seen people do this before, like where they've decided how many questions they're going to do. I don't, I just, I'm worried that it's going to result in her spreading her attention too thin. And it's to me, that doesn't seem like working on one question at a time. That seems like, like thinking about the end, you're thinking too much about the finish line instead of thinking about that one question that's right in front of you right now. Yeah. So anyway, um, I guess reasonable minds can disagree, but I guess what I'm just trying to do is that I feel like whether it's 25 questions, all 25, 26 questions, whatever in the logical reasoning section or 22 questions or whatever number that someone is shooting for, um, to get them to let go of that goal. Sometimes it seems like it might be helpful for them to set a lower goal because they just can't 
even if you tell them focus on each question, they somehow have that in the back of their mind. So it's like we need to rewrite that goal with a much more doable goal, a goal that they will definitely achieve without any effort. And then when they do that and they do very well on those questions, um, it's like it's given, it's, it's, I know it seems counter to what you're saying to give them a goal, but if the goal is, so achievable that now they feel free to slow down. Then we've accomplished that goal of letting go. Yeah. I, I just think uh, I would prefer then that the goal is one question (laughs) for real. Number one. Yeah. Like, because the thing you're not allowed to do is you're not allowed to miss questions. You just can't miss questions. You cannot miss question number one and you can't miss question number two Mm -hmm. and you can't miss question number three. If you end up not attempting questions at the end of the section, which you should end up not attempting questions at the end of the section, almost everyone should run out of time at the end of the section somewhere. I don't know anywhere between question 12 and 25, you should run out of time. And, but the thing I care about is when I look back at your, when I look back at your bubble sheet and I see that you have missed questions that you attempted, I'm not happy. Mm -hmm. That's you didn't do your work. You, what you picked, what I was yelling at this one kid in my class this weekend. I'm like, he's like trying to, he's telling me he overthought it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, I think I just, I think I just read, I reread it. I, I changed my answer. I'm like, I don't give a shit that you changed your answer, dude. You picked an answer that doesn't even come close to answering this very easy question. You just didn't do your work. And, and your excuses about overthinking are not valid. You, this was an easy question. This should have been a very easy question. Everyone in the room's nodding their head because it really was. It was like a super simple, easy question. And the answer that he had picked is just so far from an even reasonable answer. Mm-hmm. And that's the type of shit that you're just not allowed to do. You, you know, you, and that's on you. You have to slow down. You have to get that one right. I just don't want you working on the next question before you have gotten this one question right, the one that's right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Okay, anyway. Cool. Thank you, amateur philosopher. That gave us yeah, much to talk thanks, about. <laughs> Dude, that took way longer than I thought. Oh my God, okay, sorry. Hello, Ben and Nathan. I have been studying for about two months now, and I've seen minimal improvement in my scores. I started with a cold 145. Currently, I'm at 148 timed and 158 untimed. What do you think about that? Okay. Um, there's a lot of questions that this correspondent does not understand even in an untimed context, getting a lot of yeah. Also, I don't give a shit about your untimed score. That's not a thing. I think it's that's just. I don't think it's totally useless. Like for example, if he said, "Oh, I'm getting a 148." Is this he? Who is this? I don't know. Dorothy. Sorry. If she says, "I'm getting," Dorothy. I got a 148, and then she says, "Untimed, I got a 175." I'd be like, "Wow, <laughs> like you really, you really understand this stuff. What are you doing? You must be like." rushing through this section yeah that's a, that would be an awful your timing strategy there is just awful yeah so i'm sometimes i'm uh, when people do have this information i i find it interesting especially when the untimed score is not much different from the time score 
or when it's uh, a lot different, um, it shows to me a level of understanding uh, without, like, how much of their test-taking experience is being affected by the time pressure. How much are they letting the time get to them? That sort of thing. I'm just curious. Okay. Well, it, yeah, if, if this said 175, then I guess I would be like, wow, but 158 untimed. Yeah. That doesn't tell me really much. And I just don't. Yeah. And okay. Anyhow, um, <laughs> <laughs> I personally don't care okay. about your untimed yep. score. Um, so far I've taken eight practice tests. I would have done more, except I'm in Spain right now, and you wouldn't believe how many federal holidays there are. I mean, just because it's someone's birthday doesn't mean that all public buildings, such as the library, should be closed, in my humble opinion. But who am I, really? I would study in other places, except locations other than the library are loud. That includes my apartment. The neighbors are always blasting music or screaming for no reason. Anyway, mini rant over. There's nowhere in Spain to study? (laughs) Well, may I suggest earplugs or big, big headphones? Yeah. Or, yeah, it's, um, hmm, hmm, yeah, I I don't, I, that's like, to me, I'm like, kind of get over it. You're disconnected. Yeah, you're you're thinking about other things. You're thinking about external things. You're not you're not focusing closely enough on the questions that are in front of you. If if noises are distracting you, I gave a practice test. Uh, my my LA class, there was uh, some construction going on uh, while I was while I was trying to administer a practice test, mm. and I was noticing some of the students were really distracted, but others, it was as if there was not a saw electric saw in the room right next to them yeah. because they were just so into the questions, you know, they, they, they require your attention. Mm-hmm. And if you get engaged with the question, I think that you can actually just stop hearing the saw Yeah, because you've got work to do. It, it should, it should capture you if you're, if you're getting into it and you, you just got to get into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dorothy at a one forty eight, I can see, that's just not really your, your, as Ben says, you are, there's a lot you're not understanding. And so I can see how it would be. It can be very difficult to focus when you're not really understanding the things that you're reading. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're going to have to get over that at some point. Cause there, there can be, you know, if it, even if it's not screaming and loud music and, and, and that in your testing room, when you sit for the LSAT, there could be somebody tapping their pencil or the proctor could have loud shoes or the air conditioning could be going off and on. And if you, that stuff in a quiet room, that stuff can sound like a jackhammer if you pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, get some get some earplugs, get some headphones, um, and uh, just maybe get over it. Yeah, noise canceling headphones can be like two hundred, four hundred bucks, right? But you're about to put down a lot of money into law school if you don't get a scholarship. Probably worth it. Reasonable investment, yeah. Um, 
Okay. I registered for, and earplugs, by the way, cost nothing. You know? <laughs> no, no, we got to go with the uh, high tech here. <laughs> <laughs> got to go with the Bose. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I registered for the July exam and I hope to, to get a score around 165. Okay. A lot of work to do. I have incorporated advice from the show, such as slowing down, making predictions, never reading the question stem first, and working on one section each day. For logical reasoning, I will finish around the 15th question. Thanks to your slow down advice, I now get the first 10 correct, then miss one or two for the rest of my attempts. I suspect that my problem is poor review, so if you two wouldn't mind, I have some questions. We mind, but go ahead. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Thank you, Dorothy. I review missed questions or those I am unsure about. Should I be reviewing all of the questions? Huh? Oh. No, that's good. That's all you need to review. Yeah, I, I definitely, if, if you were sure and you got it right, you do not need to review that question. That seems like a waste of time. Yeah. <clears throat> when I write explanations for my logic on choosing the correct answer, is it sufficient to write irrelevant and inaccurate? Uh, there she means for the wrong answers. Yeah. I would suggest just underlining the word or phrase that made the answer choice inaccurate. You could write inaccurate, but what is inaccurate? That's often more important. Yeah. Yeah. Not only that, but people frequently, they, people frequently go ir- irrelevant. Yeah. And, and I go irrelevant. Yeah. That's a really strong. This word. is not irrelevant. Yeah. This is perfectly relevant. It's wrong, but it's perfectly relevant though. Sure. And so I would be careful there with that. And yeah, inaccurate. I mean, I like Ben. Yeah. That what part of it is inaccurate? That's where the, the rubber hits the road, right? Like when we're in class and someone says, well, this act, this answer is wrong. And you say, well, why? And they start talking about the first part of it. And you're like the first part of it, let's go through it. Mm, This is fine. This is fine. That happened. Did it not? And it's like, yeah, it did happen. So then why is it wrong? And then that's where the that's where the real learning takes place. The other thing is, uh, when you talked about irrelevant, I was thinking about, you know those flaw, wrong answers that just say, like, the argument, you know, relies oh, on yeah, something yeah. that's irrelevant? Mm-hmm. And yep. um, <laughs> just like what you were just saying, in almost all cases, it's never the case that the thing is irrelevant. It has some relevance. It's just that it's not as helpful or as pertinent as some other answer choice, but it's still relevant. And so irrelevance is just a very, very strong word. And so anyways, on a, yeah, on a flaw question, look specifically looking at the wrong answer on a flaw question, I would be like, the argument did not do what this is describing. Mm -hmm. And I might go a step further to say, in order for this to be the right answer, the argument would have to have said X, Y, Z. Yeah. That's a very useful thing to do with your study partners, by the way, if you're reviewing flaw questions with your study buddy and um, you know, maybe one of you got it right. One of you got it wrong. Let's say your, your study buddy got it wrong and you got it right. Um, you can certainly look at the right answer and tell them why the right answer is right. Show them how the argument did 
what this is describing and how that's a problem. Mm -hmm. But you can also look at their answer and you can say to them, Hey, the argument didn't really do what this is describing. And in order for this to have been the correct answer, here's what that argument would have to have said like, uh, sounded like Mm -hmm. when you can do that, you get a lot better at the flaw questions, I think. Cause the, the, yeah, I mean, those answers are never, I wouldn't say they're irrelevant. They're just describing flaws that the argument didn't make. And those answers on the flaw questions, those answers always could be, I mean, almost, I guess not always, but all the very frequently the wrong answers on a flaw question are the right answers for other flaw questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So you have to understand what the, you know, for example, hold apart flaw is. Mm -hmm. You should be able to say, well, no, this, this is sometimes the right answer. Yeah. It's not the right answer here. This would be the right answer on an argument that sounded like this. Yeah. That would be a good explanation for a wrong answer. Yeah. In a previous episode, Ben recommended coming back to missed questions a week later. I haven't done that yet, but is there a way to do that electronically? I can't afford to keep printing these exams at the Papelleria. Okay. Um, I'm not sure what... Dorothy means by doing that electronically. Take a picture of the, take a picture of the questions on your phone. Then you can just flip through them. I'm, yeah, that works. Or keep the, keep the tests. I, are you like? Yeah, are you burning, burning them? the pages? After? <laughs> I'm done with that one. <laughs> Building paper airplanes and throwing them out the window, rolling joints with them. What are you doing? I don't know. You could you could uh, keep keep that page and put a sticky note and come back to it. Okay. Uh, Thank you for your time. I love the show. It warms my heart to know that other people are also listening to the show at work because they have fake jobs. (laughs) Best Dorothy. In other words, P.S. I remembered that while at the library the other day, I heard muffled screams. Cheers. Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Dorothy's just, she's upset about how loud it is in Spain. She's looking forward to coming back to some peace and quiet here in the good old U.S. of A. Uh, <laughs> amusing. Thank you, Dorothy, very yeah, much for your email. Thank you. This next one um, is to you, so I'll read it and you can respond. Sound oh. good? Okay, great. <laughs> Hi, Nathan. <laughs> I have a lot of questions, so bear with me. My overall goal okay. is to apply for entry into law school for fall of 2019. Okay. Currently, I have taken one quote dry, as in unstudied, practiced LSAT, timed and all, and scored a 155. Sweet. Yeah, that's a good starting score. Good start. Dry. I have you ever referred to it as a dry test? No, we would call that cold. Cold. Yeah. Yeah. Or diagnostic. But, but anyways. That's cool. Cool. Right. We'll start calling it dry from now on just for you. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> I missed about 10 each on the reading comprehension and logical reasoning sections. Okay. So 30 questions and about seven on the logic games. My conclusion was that I should hone in on the logic games since those sections cover about 50% of the test. Whoops, wait. She means logical yep, reasoning. Logical reasoning. Yep. When I began reviewing the questions I missed, I noticed that 17 out of the 20 questions I missed were flawed reasoning or necessary assumption type questions. Um, that's not surprising because those are more common than other types, or particularly flaw and must-be-true questions. But in any case... My question. Yeah. Also, it's not that it's not that rare because necessary assumption questions, I think, tend to be some of the hardest questions yep, on the LR. Exactly. And 
Okay. Some of the, well, there's just a lot of flawed questions, but a lot of them tend to be hard yeah. too. My questions are as follows. One, would you mind spending a podcast episode on these two reasoning type questions or at least give me some pointers because something cl- is clearly not clicking? Sure. Okay. So flaw questions. What say ye? Well, first of all, they're, they're very different. These are not the same type of question at all. Um, Although there is so some overlap. Sure. Um, they are kind of in the, in the same family of evidence-based questions, sure. right? They're, they're kind of in the must-be-true family, cousins of must-be-true. I was thinking also um, they're both problem questions in the sense that you're trying to figure out what's wrong with the argument. Sure. So for a flaw question, it is an evidence-based question where the correct answer will describe something that the argument did and that is a problem. You should very frequently be predicting the correct answer on a flaw question because they test the same common flaws over and over and over and over, especially the flaw of confusing sufficient for necessary and especially the correlation to causation flaw, you know, and just ignoring possible reversal of cause and effect and ignoring possible alternate causes. But there are, other very, very common flaw question, um, common flaws. And as we were just talking about, you can get much better at the flaw questions by just making sure you dig into the wrong answers on each question and making sure you understand what the hell they're talking about with these wrong answers and thinking about what the answer, what type of an argument would make that answer correct. Anything you want to add to flaw no um no not really i mean i one thing you said really quickly is that the uh the answer choices describe what's going on in the argument and so that's there's two other question types that do that there's role questions and reasoning questions but for all three of these questions flaw role and reasoning um your the f- the five answer choices are describing what's happening. So a lot of times I'll just ask myself, does this describe exactly what's happening in the passage? And if it doesn't, if the answer says examples, but there was only one example in the passage, then I will cross it mm. out. And I won't really worry too much about whether it's a flaw or whatnot. Um, I'm not saying that's the only thing I'm thinking about. You also have to think about the flaw, but it's one easy way to get rid of some answer choices, at least some wrong answer choices. Sure. If it, you know, the, the answer is relies on the testimony and you go, whoa, wait a minute. They never talked about anybody's opinion of anything. Yeah. Well, that ain't the answer. I don't care what the rest of that answer choice says. Yep. It didn't rely on anybody's testimony at all. Yeah. Or it might, I guess mm. we should go ahead. Oh, go another ahead. favorite one I have is they'll say like, oh, it infers yada yada from the claim that and then the claim that they state in the answer choice will be similar to a claim that stayed in the passage, but not mm. the same claim. And people will choose that because they'll kind of morph the two together. But I'm always like, is that claim stated in, is the claim that's stated in the answer choice stated anywhere in the passage or in the argument? And if it's not there, it doesn't matter how great you think about the rest of the answer choice. That claim was never stated. And so this answer is wrong. Yeah. And if the answer says from the claim that this is the only cause of cancer, yep. well, they might've said it was a cause of cancer, 
They might have said it was the main cause of cancer. But did they actually say that it's the only cause of cancer? Because if they didn't, that ain't the answer. So you got to read the entire answer choice. You're not going to fall in love with two words and decide that that makes that the answer. You're frequently going to fall out of love with one word in the answer. Mm -hmm. If there's one word that's wrong, then that entire answer choice is wrong. These are evidence-based questions. You're, you have to vouch for them. You have to decide that the argument, yes, the argument did do this and it is going to, it's a big problem that they did it. I guess we should say there's one kind of caveat to that, which is if the answer choice starts with fails to consider the possibility that. Sure. Well, in that case, the argument is almost always doing that, right? The argument is failing to consider whatever they say next because whatever they say next is not something that was mentioned or discussed in the passage. And so nine times out of 10, the argument is in fact failing to consider whatever they say next, but the question then becomes, is that a problem? Is that something that they should have considered or do we not really care? Yes, uh, absolutely. Sorry, is that what you're going to say about those? Yes, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just I, there because we I get so into the like when I'm describing the difference between a flaw question and a weakened question, mm-hmm. right? Weakened question. Hey, if this is true, does it hurt the argument? Mm-hmm. And you never have to think about, well, did they or did they not do yeah. that? But on a flaw question, you have to think about, did they do it? Yeah. Except if they go fails to consider the possibility or neglects to consider or, you know, other uh, other things along those lines. Well, it's interesting because you're actually still thinking about whether they did that. <laughs> you're just thinking, did they fail to consider this? And sometimes the answer might be, no, they didn't fail to consider this. They did, in fact, address this, and therefore oh, this answer right, choice right. is wrong. But. Right, yes, okay. Okay, perfect. Um, necessary assumption questions. I always like to point out first the difference between sufficient assumption questions and necessary yeah, assumption questions. I think that's helpful because a lot of times people hear the word necessary and they think, oh, I need a strong answer. I need something that's, quote, necessary and thus strong. And it's like, oops, you're, you're looking for a sufficient assumption. Mm, yeah. Sufficient assumption questions are about making the argument win. On a sufficient assumption question, I'm looking for the answer that if true makes the argument win. It's a missing piece that makes us win our case. Yep. And the correct answer does not need to be true. It doesn't matter um, what it says. But if it were true, no matter how crazy it is, if it makes the conclusion true, that's the correct answer. Yeah. If this is true, then we know for sure that we're going to win our case. Um, necessary assumption. And, and by the way, sufficient assumption questions are super predictable. They're super easy. Once you get tuned into them, once you know what the hell you're doing, you should be able to look at the premises of an argument, look at the conclusion of an argument, and you should be able to predict, Hey, this is the one thing. If we, if we had this, if only we could have this one missing piece, then we could make this argument win. We could prove this conclusion. Yeah. And you should be able to predict that answer and just go find it because you need to understand what winning an argument really feels like on the LSAT. Sufficient assumption means if it's true, the argument will win. Necessary assumption questions are a little bit different. Necessary assumption questions, the analysis is which one 
if false will make the argument lose. And there can be many, many ways to lose an argument. Yeah. If the argument is a little machine and you're, you're kind of, you know, you want to make the machine run on a sufficient assumption question. It's like, Oh, I see there's one missing piece right here. All we got to do is, Oh, there's no gas in it. There's no gas in it. It's perfectly work. The thing works. There's no gas in it. If we put gas in it, it will win. It will run. Right. So the sufficient assumption is just, Oh, Hey, where's the gas? Let's go get the gas. Oh, there we go. We got the gas. Boom. The, the, you know, and the machine starts running. Yeah. Which actually raises a good point, which is that they write those arguments in such a way that there's almost always only one problem in the argument so that you can fix it with just gas or just whatever answer choice you choose. Yeah. Uh, there can't be a whole bunch of problems with it because then to make the argument win, you'd need yeah. an answer choice that fixed them all. Well, there sometimes could be two, but I don't know that there's ever more oh, than that. Oh, no. And, and, and the answer would you have know? to resolve both of those. And so it's hard. Right. The answer in that case would have to be, oh, well, it, we need gas and we need a spark yep. plug. Mm-hmm. But it, so then the correct answer says gas and spark plug. And then you, the machine starts yeah. running. You know, yeah. the smoke is pouring out of it and it's making whatever widgets it's making. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay. So what a 20th century, yeah, dated analogy. No offense. <laughs> <laughs> Dick. It's uh, got smoke coming um, out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So continuing with my dated analogy. <laughs> on, a, on a necessary assumption question, I'm looking for the one that if false will make the argument lose. And... Um, it could be that gas is also necessary yeah. and it could be that the spark plug is also necessary. If we don't have gas, then this shit isn't going to run. And so gas is necessary. If we don't have a spark plug, this shit isn't going to run. So a spark plug is necessary, but there are also literally an infinite number of other things that could go wrong with this machine. Like what if a dinosaur came into the room and stomped on the machine. That would be a problem. Well, that would be a problem. The machine would no longer run, right? Therefore, if the machine is going to run, it necessarily assumes that a dinosaur has not come into the room and stomped on the machine. Yeah. And it's weird to, it's, I, it's weird to, to think about that, that this is a, Wait, what do you mean that's a necessary assumption? You're telling me that that is something that they assumed? And and yeah, I I did. Yes. Um I assumed that a this argument if, if the machine is going to run, it necessarily assumes that Martians aren't coming into the room and shooting the machine with laser beams and blowing it up it necessarily assumes that a pit did not open into the center of the earth and the machine didn't fall down into uh, a pool of lava. And you could go on and on literally infinitely because there's one way to win an argument. That's the sufficient assumption, but there's a bazillion things that could go wrong with the argument. And each one of those things that could be wrong the argument can be said to be necessarily assuming that those things are not going wrong. Mm-hmm. That's why necessary assumption questions are a lot harder than sufficient assumption questions. Yeah. 
What do you think about all that? Do you like my antiquated analogy? I, I'm warming up to it. Warming up to it? <laughs> Just- it's fucking brilliant, dude. I love it. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. We can it. update it. Let's update it. We're going to update it. It's going to be a flying Tesla Roadster. There you go. There you go. To Mars. No, I like it a lot. Okay. Okay. Beautiful. Um, you know, don't make too much of, of all of that on a very simple question. The, the answer might be both sufficient and necessary. I think gas is a good example of that. If the machine is perfectly running, you know, it's in perfect working order. It could be that gas is sufficient to make it start and also necessary if without the gas, without the gas, this shit ain't running. And with the gas, it will, if the machine is otherwise in tip top shape. Yeah. So in that case, they could ask you a sufficient assumption question, or they could ask you a necessary assumption question. And the answer would just be gas in either case. Yeah. But if they ask you that necessary assumption question, like if they asked you the sufficient assumption question, the answer would have to be gas. And if they asked you the necessary assumption question, then it could be dinosaurs and freeze rays and pits opening up into a pool of lava. So that's why necessary assumption questions are harder. Can I have you ever have I ever told you my money analogy for this one? Can't wait. <laughs> it's not as good as my machine, but go yeah, ahead. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Proceed with a subpart analogy. <laughs> um, okay, so the way I think about it sometimes is, um, let's say someone's trying to go to a party, right? And the party costs yeah. uh, five, well, let's say it costs $10. Um, it, it costs $10 to get into this party. And so I like to ask students, I say, hey, so what happens if you if you show up with $10? Is that sufficient to go to the party and you know, the, yeah, that's, that's sufficient to cost $10 to get into the party. So, uh, if you have $10 then you can get in and then I say, well, is that necessary? Do you need $10? And it's like, yeah, well the party costs $10. So yes, you need it. Um, so that's if, if the party costs $10 and you show up with $10, then you have, a sufficient amount of money, but you also have the necessary amount of money. But okay, let's good. say you show up with twenty dollars. Is that sufficient? And yes, yeah, that's, that's enough, enough sure. right? Mm-hmm. Is that necessary? Do you need twenty dollars? And he's like, "Well, wait, no, I don't need twenty. I only need ten. So you've showed up with a sufficient but unnecessary amount of money. So that's." Um, an example of something that's sufficient but not necessary. Uh, if you show up with $5, I think this was where people's minds get a little bent, um, do you have a sufficient amount of money? No, because it costs $10 and you don't. So in other words, you don't have enough money to go to the party. But is $5 necessary? Yes, it yeah, is. Because if you need 10 then you need 5 before you can even get to 10 So you need that money even though it's not sufficient. So, yeah, you also need one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine dollars. And you also need not to have been robbed of all of your money by a rabid kindergartner, a rabid kindergartner. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You do need that to be true. (laughs) 
Because if you were robbed by a rabid, robbed of all of your money by a rabid kindergartner yep. on the way to the party, then now you don't have any yeah. money. So it's necessary that you were not. Yeah. I like it. Cool. It's good. So, um, how do you say this name? Tiana? Yeah. Tiana. Tiana continues. I know I am honing in on the reasoning sections, but would you suggest another tactic given that I am finishing the reading and reasoning sections and not getting to the last game? I I feel like you're missing 10 in those three sections. And that's not even like, that's not even a hard and fast number. And you're missing seven in the games. I would just focus on all three sections. I, I, I don't see a need to hone in on one over the other. And you naturally will hone in on reasoning because there's two of them for every test. So, yeah. Also games is the easiest section to improve on. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't ignore the games. No. Um, but yeah, the, these, we get these questions all the time and this is not, you don't have a crazy out of whack. It's not like you're getting four on the games. Yeah. And it's not like you're getting 23 on the games. Yeah. You are, you're imperfect on the games, but pretty good, but you don't suck, but you can get better and you're pretty good, but you don't suck on all the other sections too. You can get better. So no honing. No. Also, it's not honing. It's homing. Yeah. Honing is when you sharpen a knife. Homing in is when you um, are like zeroing in, targeting in on some certain section. Okay. Number three, it's April 1st now. Wow. April 1st. Took us uh, three weeks. Hey, we're only 23 (laughs) days behind, dude. That's good. And maybe this is an April Fool's joke. It's April 1st now, and I have not chosen or paid for either the July or September test. Which test do you think would be better, the better choice, given where I'm scoring now? Well, we take them both. I, yeah, why not both? 155 is a good starting score, so you should do decently well by July. Why not take June? Agreed. This is going to come out. I, is the June deadline coming up really soon, Ben? I feel do like you know it's early May. Sure? Yeah. <clears throat> so this might not be out by the time of the... I think um, it'll get out right before the June deadline. Yeah. Right, well, let's see here. Okay. Go for it. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I... I, why not, why not both? Why not earlier? If you want to go to law school in 2019, you need to be applying in the fall of 2018. And, um, Oh, Anne was in my class, Ben on, um, on Saturday and she was saying something new. Uh, she was, you know, how I remember last year she was saying, get your applications in before Halloween. Yeah. And we kind of adopted sure. that and started saying yeah. Halloween. She, this year she was actually talking about, Hey, if you can get them in at the very, very beginning of the cycle, you should. Oh, interesting. Yeah, like September, like before the September test. Yeah. She was like, if you can, you you should you should consider getting them in like before the September LSAT. Why did she say that? She didn't really. I, I think it's just it's better if you can. Mm. And it's not like you should beat yourself up if you end up taking a September test and applying before Halloween. That's fine, too. That's still early. Yeah. But... There's early and then there's very early. Hmm. And she did seem to be saying very early is good, which I hadn't really heard her say before. Yeah. So that, that kind of struck me. Anyway, Tiana, you're close enough that it seems like you should be able to take a shot at June. What's the deadline on that, Ben? Yeah. So this podcast is going to come out on Tuesday, May 1st. And lo and behold, that is the registration deadline. So Oh, so today, as you hear this, if you're listening to it on the first day, which you should be eagerly awaiting each one of our episodes. Yes. 
Um, you should go ahead and register for that June test if you're 155 or Tiana must be higher than that by now because this was three weeks ago and surely she has been diligently working every day to improve her LSAT score. So why not take it in June and July and September if necessary? I mean, if you hit a home run in June, then you just don't take it in July. If you hit a home run in July, then you don't take it in September, but multiple bites at it is a really good thing. Law schools only care about your highest score. Um, I want to say this again because people are still confused. The fact that the July test is non-disclosed doesn't mean shit. Yep. You you don't get your test back, so you don't get to see which ones you missed, but who cares? That's not the point. Mm -hmm. Tiana has done a lot of practice tests by now, and... she, you know, she should be ready for the test. She's going to be ready to get her ultimate official best LSAT score on the July test. And it, she does not need to get that test back to be able to review it. It doesn't, this does not matter. Um, so she should take the test. The other thing is if you're not sure you are going to be ready, but you think you're kind of getting close you might want to go ahead and register for it, even if you're going to be burning $180 if you withdraw. Yeah. Because 180 bucks, I know that that's a lot of money for uh, many people, but 180 bucks compared to 180,000 bucks for law school is just a drop in the bucket. And if you're not sure about June, if today's May 1st and you're not sure about June, but you're close, you've got another m- month and a half to study. And for $180, you can give yourself an option to take it in June. Yeah. And that option, if you're ready, you're going to be very, very happy that you have that option. And if you're not ready on June 8th, you can just withdraw and it's as if you were never registered. You don't get your 180 bucks back. You're donating to the benevolent overlords at <clears throat> LSAC. But you, you had the option of taking it. Yeah. If you have um, unlimited money, that's absolutely what you should do. And even if you don't have unlimited money, you should consider whether that's um, whether you can scrape up the 180 bucks and just go ahead and do it. Because that if you're if you end up being ready, like what you know, let's say the games all of a sudden click for you and now you're ready. Mm -hmm. You'd love to be able to take it in June. It's an extra chance at it. Yeah. And this advice applies no matter when you're listening to this podcast, that episode, that uh, advice is always going to apply for whatever else that you're, you're considering. Yep. Um, <clears throat> okay, good. That's Tiana. Thank you. Thank you for writing in. Good luck. Yeah. Thanks Tiana. Okay. So here's uh, this is a, we're shifting gears now. This is a listener uh, who wants some advice about personal statement stuff. Okay. This is not an actual personal statement that we're going to rip to shreds. Although, Ooh, shit. We do have one of those for next time. Yep. Tune in next time to hear us rip, uh, Eve's personal statement into tiny little pieces. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People love it when we do those. Yeah. Um, (laughs) did Jordan ever write back to us, by the way, I'd be really too offended. Uh, I can't remember. Jordan, let us know how you felt. Jordan, hope we didn't ruin your life. Nah, I don't think so. Jordan was like very, in Jordan's email, I thought, mm-hmm. it was very like, um, tell me. I really, I want honest feedback. Yeah. So, yeah. 
well, we're good at that. Um, okay, so here we go. Hello, Nathan. My name is Elsa. Uh, not, not her real name. And I am a fairly new listener to the Thinking LSAT podcast. First, let me say thank you. I just completed your free online LSAT course and found your instructional style and approach to be very helpful after wasting about a month of my life with Kaplan back in February. The video explanations and hearing you talk through the questions has been instrumental in moving forward with my practice tests. Uh, thanks, Elsa. In addition to your free course and the PowerScore books, uh, mostly for the logic games, I've also just enrolled in Ben's free course to see his insights into the 2007, June 2007 test. I'm taking the LSAT in June and probably in September as well, thanks to your suggestion to plan to take the test more than once. Mm, I'm immediately thinking, why not July? There is also a July test this year. Why not July? Mm-hmm. Anyway, I intend to apply to schools once rolling admissions for the 2019 school year open in the fall. Great. I'm reaching out to ask your opinion on the actual admissions process, mainly the personal statement and or diversity statement. I recently listened to episode 113 of the podcast in which you and Ben answer a listener email regarding a diversity statement and how to play up your strengths as a student with a unique background. I'm struggling with the same concept as your listener. I am a Mexican woman from a state with a large Hispanic population with a 4.0 undergraduate GPA, interdisciplinary studies in the humanities. I have been out of school working full time for the last five years in a completely different part of the country. I'm now located in the Midwest. Okay. Um, Mexican woman that is underrepresented in law school and a 4.0 undergraduate GPA, that is going to be really, really good. Yeah, it's impressive. Get a great LSAT score, Elsa, because if you get a great LSAT score, you are going to Harvard or Stanford or Yale. Yeah. I don't think you're going to have to worry about your personal statement too much. (laughs) I mean, for Harvard, Stanford, Yale, you better write something pretty good. Yeah, no, that's um, true. You know, but you're going to get, boy, if you get a solid LSAT score, you're going to get you're going to get some crazy offers. Um, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Okay. My upbringing was unconventional in that my family suffered a lot as I grew up. My father committed suicide when I was 11. Yikes. My mother served time in jail when I was a teenager and struggled with addiction to prescription narcotics, all of which led to me dropping out of high school moving out before age 18 and working full-time in the food service industry until I was able to launch myself out of my rural hometown, secure my GED, and get into college a few hours away. After such familial loss and personal family struggles, I was quite poor but managed to support myself through school and assist my mother in her road to recovery. Wow. My question is this. How do I best turn this into a personal statement on overcoming adversity without making my life sound like a melodrama? I am certain that my life experiences have taught me the value of hard work, of honesty and integrity, and of empathy. But even writing out the short version of this to you in this email makes me wonder if I will be taken seriously by an admissions council. In spite of the circumstances of life, I I soared academically in college. I want an admissions council to see what I am capable of because of what I have achieved 
in spite of life circumstances. Is it advisable to be so personal in a personal statement? Or perhaps would I be better served to scrap the overcoming adversity aspect of the personal statement and better highlight my experience as a minority woman, example, being a Mexican woman in downstate Illinois, where I dealt with ethnic discrimination regularly. Any advice you have on this topic would be greatly appreciated. Again, many thanks to both you and Ben for your guidance in this process and for your free resources that you have online. The podcast and the courses are so helpful for someone studying for the LSAT on a budget. Thank you, Elsa, not real name. Thoughts? Well, okay. So first, Elsa, this email is very well written. I expect that your personal statement will be well written, which will add to your credibility. Second, you have a 4.0 GPA, which proves what you're saying here that you soared academically. You don't need to say that. That will be accepted. These are adding to your credibility. Also, when you told us about your father, your mother, you didn't complain. You just stuck to the facts. So I don't see there being a problem with you mentioning this quickly to set some background. What I would do, though, is expand on your story uh, later in life, maybe while you were in school, uh, in college, or while you were helping your mother, or whatever it is that's most important to you. But I don't think mentioning these facts quickly and at the beginning or somewhere in your statement to give context is going to hurt you in any way because the way you've presented it to us seems very factual rather than complaining. Yeah, the 4.0 goes a long way. Um, a a solid LSAT score is really going to nail that home. And they are absolutely going to take you seriously with your 4.0 and your 160-something. Mm-hmm. Right? Um. Personal statements do need to be personal. That's the whole point. They, you're, they're supposed. Anne was in class and said, "You should be learning something." They need to be learning new things about you from the very first sentence. Yeah. So you're gonna want to tell. You're gonna want to tell them who you are. It's your statement. Who are you? The thing I would shy away from a bit is. If your statement is about your dad's suicide, your dad's suicide is not you. This happened when you were 11. You now are not 11. You're five years out of college. You know, you're, you're 24 or five, whatever. So just make sure that the statement is about you. What do you want to do about it? You know, what, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Why do you want to go to law school? Because your dad's suicide and your mom's being addicted to narcotics, that's not you being a lawyer. I mean, I'd be curious what story she does want to tell. She didn't really tell a story with each of these things. It's more just like things that have happened. Um, You definitely need to unpack something. It would want to be something more recent, but maybe it is assisting her mother. And that could be about her, not about her mother. Or, um, I mean, obviously it's a story with her mother, but ultimately you'd be focusing on yourself and what you learn from it or how it's motivating you now to go forward to law school or whatever it else, whatever else it is in your life that's important to you. 
um, I'm sure these experiences have informed that. Yeah. We want first person sentences with you doing things. I did. I do. I, I want to do, I will do. And, and you need to be telling them about, you know, telling them something new about you. So if the story is you supporting yourself through school, they don't know that necessarily. And if it's you assisting your mother in her road to recovery, they definitely don't know that. And along the way, if you want to mention that your dad committed suicide, I think that's okay. It it sheds light on your mom's problems and, and it, it, you know, makes it even more, uh, makes your story even more powerful that you were able to get a 4.0 while supporting yourself and your mom through, through college. So yeah, that's all great. And I don't think that's like a melodrama, but you just, you don't want to dwell on shit that happened when you were in high school. Yeah. And I don't think that it doesn't seem like she's going to do that. It seems like she's just going to mention this to provide context for how she ended up providing for herself, moving out and stuff like that. So it's a pretty common mistake though, that people make where they, their personal statement starts with them in high school. Mm -hmm. We don't care about you in high school. This is, this is more for other people than it is for Elsa. Cause Elsa has a pretty powerful story that she wants to tell here. Yeah. But for, for all you listeners, we do not want to hear about your, your high school shit. We don't really want to hear about your college shit. If you're a couple years out of college, I don't really care what happened when you were a freshman in college. That's not, that's not who I'm getting now. If I'm considering you coming to my law school. Yeah. And Elsa's got five years out of college. So, you know, my, my concern, if she's going to be talking in her personal statement about supporting herself in college, mm. my concern then is, well, okay, but what have you been doing for the past five years? Sure. Who, who are you? Who am I getting now? Mm-hmm. Cause I'm not getting that exact same person who, I mean, it's you, but it's, it's a, it's a you five years removed from all that. Yeah. Um, I do think that you know, a Mexican woman very likely wants to write a diversity statement. Anne was talking about two different questions that they can ask on the diversity statement. Okay. I can't even remember what those were though. I don't know. (laughs) You got to just, the point is you have to read the question and you have to, you have to respond to the question, whatever they're asking. They ask different questions. Yeah. 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 But when they, you know, if the, if, if the question is talking about overcoming adversity, Mm -hmm. then you can definitely talk about either of these things I would think are overcoming adversity, Mm -hmm. but the diversity statement, you definitely want to talk about being a Mexican woman and having, having discrimination in your life. Yeah. You don't have to dwell on that. You don't have to go on and on about that, but you're, you're going to want to make sure that you're pointing out your, your um, ethnic diversity just because that's going to be a major feather in your cap here with, uh, they just don't see that many. They just don't see that many Mexican people with a 4.0. Mm-hmm. They don't see a lot of blacks and Latins with 4.0s and they don't see a lot of blacks and Latins with really good LSAT scores. Yeah. I don't know. I guess we'd have to read it, huh? I mean, we'd have to see, we'd have to see it. There's a million ways you could tell this story. You could tell it really well, or you could tell it really shitty. I don't know. Well, given how well Elsa has written this email, um, I would 
say send it in because it might be a good example for us to still rip apart, but not as much, <laughs> right? Like it's more realistic. Yeah, uh, this could be this could be really good. Anyway, um, yeah, go ahead, send it in, Elsa, if you want. If you want us to to read your personal statement on the show, we would love to uh, give it a shot. Yep. Cool. Cool. Thanks. Um, yeah. What do you think? Leave it there. Yeah, that's it. So, all right. That was show one thirty-seven. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school. 